listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Well, welcome to Thursday, and I uh, hope you're surviving the heat wave. Man, it is stinking hot out there. The heat wave is on, and you know what? It is only going to get hotter come September, and I don't mean the temperature outside. I do not mean the humidity. I mean the stupidity. I am already losing sleep over September. I How I get the kids occupied and engaged for the summer I mean, I'm just looking at the, you know, yawning gulf of time between now and when school is supposed to come back and thinking to myself, what am I going to do? You heard in the news, parents overwhelmingly concerned about screen times. Just hearing the word screen times triggers me a little bit because there are no limitations anymore in my house. The kids have gone feral. There are no rules And so if we don't get class back in September in some kind of structure, I think we're all in trouble. Working parents, single parents, I mean, what is going to happen? We got vague promises of some kind of hybrid system. That's a fancy term for saying we don't know what's going to happen. That's essentially what it is. (laughs) The uh, Globe and Mail has obtained a memo from the Ministry of Education in this province to school boards that say you need to prioritize time in class. But wait a second. This entire hybrid model with this idea of cohorts of students and they'd come in for a couple of days and there's a day of deep cleaning in between or maybe it's a week on and week off. All of that extremely difficult to maximize in class time. And so now school boards are like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Here's one example of one idea that's being floated. The Ottawa-Carleton District School Board says that half of its elementary students would attend on Mondays and Tuesdays, the other half on Thursdays and Fridays. Then you get a nice clean day on Wednesday. Wednesday's clean. Hump day's clean day. It's hump clean day is what it is. And that this, I mean, if you're a parent, you're like, well, how is that going to work? Well, I'm just going to go to my boss and get... Yeah, listen, so... Um, I'm uh, I'm planning only to work uh, two days a week. Good to you, boss? I don't think so. we got a lot more coming up on this. At 1 p.m., Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, will be at the Premier's press conference today. I don't, he's not scheduled to actually talk about this, but you know there will be questions more about this. I mean, what are we talking about here? Tick-tock, tick-tock. September is coming, and the stress level on parents. I mean, already we're concerned about our parents kids and we're concerned about their not just their education and i tell you what it's not the education really that gets me i you know they'll catch up i mean yes you know the learning is important but my goodness the social interaction the growth all of those things that go along with school so important to their mental health and to just the economy as a whole and to parents our mental health you know if you're a parent man this thing is wearing wearing us down I want to turn uh, to just another tragedy, more carnage on our streets for cyclists again. And we have talked about this before. You know, we have more and more cyclists out there because of the pandemic. People are like, well, I'm not getting on public transit. I'm going to get a bike. And, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of bike stores. It just sold out. You can't get bikes. So people are taken to the streets on their bikes. And what has happened is what's been happening for years 
which is just death. We have a 55-year-old cyclist dead, and again, a hit and run. Driver not staying. This happened in Peel Regional, the uh, Peel Region, pardon me. Catherine McDonald's our crime reporter and unfortunately does too many of these stories and joins me on the line. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Alan. Uh, yeah, so there's a, a, some uh, breaking news here on this story. Um, I just got off the phone with investigators from Peel Regional Police and Road Safety Services, and they tell me that they are no longer treating this as a fail-to-remain collision. Uh, they have now located the driver and uh, the vehicle, and the driver is cooperating. Um, it appears the driver was unaware uh, that he had struck this cyclist last night around midnight um, here at the corner of here, Ontario, and Dundas and Mississauga. And um, it's it's a very sad story because we have had a number, uh, you know, a number of cyclists killed in the last few months around the GTA. I've covered a number of these collisions. Um, and in this case, uh, this investigator from Road Safety Services said to me, the message that people need to know is um, that, you know, our roads need to be shared. Uh, this is about, uh, you know, cyclists and drivers um, all always taking precautions. From what I understand, this 55-year-old man uh, was with a friend. He was on, on his bicycle, and he was riding northbound on your Ontario. And investigators tell me that he may have slipped off the curb, and that was when he may have been struck by this 18-wheeler. So uh, really a tragic story. The driver, who was originally believed to be, um, you know, they were looking for him as a suspect in a, in a fail-to-remain collision, has now been identified, and it is no longer being treated that way. But it doesn't diminish uh, the fact that we have another a cyclist who is dead here in, in Mississauga, and um, uh, you know, two families are ruined because I'm sure the driver of that truck is also devastated. It's been a while since I've been out that area here, in Ontario. I don't believe there's any kind of cycling lane on that on that road, is there? No, there isn't. And I I've been speaking with cycling advocates from uh, the Peel region area who have been you know asking for more you know bike lanes because people are riding bikes more during the pandemic for sure. They're afraid to take. Uh, you know, the public transit, they want to, they, they feel it's safer that way. But certainly there have been so many collisions involving cyclists. I'm trying to get some numbers from Peel on how many we've had this year to date. And we had that one, I know we had recently the, the tragic case where we had the, the young woman driving and failed to remain there. And that, that that's obviously a, a different situation than we have here. But like you're saying, this is happening time and time again. And we know that the numbers, if not going up, they are still very sad and shocking. Right. And, and you know, people people know this man here at this corner. Apparently he was, he was well-known in the area. I've been told police have, have been identified him yet. They're still looking for next of kin. But he was with a friend who remained at the scene who, who would have witnessed this. So um, just really a tragedy for this community and for that family. And as you said, there was this family um, in Markham, uh, that lost a man also in his 50s. That, that was the fail to remain where they did arrest a 25-year-old woman. And in that case, he left behind a family with three children and a wife, and he was a beloved uh, soccer coach. So, you know, there's a story to every single fatality. These are just these are just not cyclists. These are people who were loved. Uh, in that case of, of that family um, in, in Markham, you know, they've, they've been in touch with me, and they're still trying to get their head around the fact that this could have happened. In his case, he was just, he had bought a bicycle at the beginning of the pandemic because he wanted to get in shape, and he was out for his, his daily ride, and he had all the safety gear. And, of course, you know, cyclists are urged to wear uh, reflective gear and to be, you know, to be visible. This happened at midnight last night. It would have been very dark here on here, Ontario. Um, and, of course, that you're, when a bicycle is on the roadway and you're, you're up against an 18-wheeler, you don't stand a chance, even if you're wearing a helmet. 
Catherine McDonald is our Global News crime reporter. She's working on the story. And thanks for bringing that breaking news that this is no longer police investigating a fail to remain. Catherine, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Stay tuned, of course, uh, Global News uh, tonight at Global News at 5.30 and 6. You'll see Catherine's report. But, you know, every time you, you hear one of these, and, you know, that, you know, if there is a silver lining here, it isn't another case of uh, a fail to remain. And, you know, perhaps, you know, it's, we don't know exactly what happened. But and as Catherine says, if you got a bicycle and a truck together, there's, you know, only one winner. And there's no winners, really, but there's, there's definitely one loser. In, in that kind of a thing. And here we have, again, another example. If, if we can just build a little bit more infrastructure. we If you are a cyclist, as I am, you know, the fear that you have going out, just trying to get from A to B. Yeah, I've been really kicking around the idea, starting to get back on, you know, cycling here up to Don Mills where the where the TV studio is now that I basically I do all of my shows from here. I do the radio show. You're listening to me from uh, Don Mills, where I am now, and then on TV later today uh, here in the same studio. And I think, well, why don't I just ride? It's like, well, except for I got to go through an underpass. I just actually have to go through an underpass under the rail line with no bike lane. There's no way to get through there. There's this whole section in the east where there's just no way, there's no good way to get where I need to go without putting myself at significant risk. You know, and if going forward we're going to say, you know what, people are not going to take public transit. we got to find a different way to get people where they need to go. Then it's got to include more safety for vulnerable road users. All right, when we come back on the Alan Carter Radio program, we're going to wade back into the whole mask thing. It's been at least, what, 24 hours now since we've seen a viral video of somebody wigging out and losing their minds over having to wear a mask in a store. I, I'm thinking that I have to take a quick break, and when I come back, probably in that space of time, one will pop up. But we're going to talk about the psychology behind all of this. Why is it that some people react so strongly? to being asked to put on a mask. That's next on the Alan Carter Radio Program. Welcome back to the program. Why is it we just cannot tear our eyes away from these viral videos of people losing their minds in stores and the Costco, at the Trader Joe's, at the TNT, so on and so forth? We love to see them. And not only do we love to see them, we don't really think, though, very much about why it is that they are happening. I'll give you up to some updates here on uh, what you know. What are the greatest misses, perhaps, of the uh, the whole situation? And and I, I will point out this too: that you know, here in Canada, we like to be smug about the things that we perceive are better here than in the United States. And obviously, coronavirus numbers are. Pretty obvious, the cases, you know, we have very low cases here compared to what's happening in the United States. But polling information shows that Americans, on a percentage case anyway, are much more willing to wear a mask, feel much better about wearing masks in public than Canadians do. It's like in the 70% number for the Americans, and it's like 50% for Canadians. And that's why we are seeing our own homegrown, homegrown wigouts about masks. For example, this one that made the rounds yesterday. This is over the weekend. A man at a Mississauga TNT, that is an Asian supermarket, kind of losing it, 
when he was asked to put on a mask, and now police are investigating this as a possible hate crime. This is a lie. This is a communist socialist lie. Where did we get our Wuhan communist virus? From China. From you guys. Communist virus. The communist. The communist. Where are you from? Where are you from? No, where are you from? I'm Canadian. I told you I have asthma. 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 You cannot scream. I have asthma. You cannot scream. I have asthma. And I have told you that. Sir, you cannot scream. Where's your two meters? Where's your two meters? That is an incident this weekend at a Mississauga supermarket where a man was asked to leave because he would wear not wear a mask, and now police are investigating it as a possible hate crime. TNT, the grocery chain, has put out a statement uh, supporting their managers and their staff and their store employees and say that they acted correctly and did exactly the right thing. Then you got that. Then you go from there to Leticia Montana. Leticia Montana, who goes If you went to to visit an elderly relative in a long-term care home, would you put a mask on? Why would I do that? I'm sorry, I wouldn't. I'm not going to do that when I see my grandma, who, by the way, I'm not allowed to see right now unless I subject myself to a COVID test. I mean that's that's another extreme infringement on our, our on our bodily autonomy. Uh, being being asked to 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 have a COVID test done in order that I may visit my grandma in, in the nursing home. This is this is almost a medical blackmail. What's happening in this country? It's absolutely <laughs> unbelievable to me. That is Leticia Montana speaking to our John Oakley earlier this week. Miss Montana gained infamy this weekend when she went to the hospital to St. Joseph's Medical Center and said, I got an issue with this finger right here, this finger, uh, and would not wear a mask and was asked when asked to wear a mask, refused, videotaped it, posted, uh, and now has sort of decided to make herself some sort of a spokesperson for the anti-mask movement. Mothers Against Distance is, for some reason, what they've come up as their name. So that's Leticia Montana, our two local anti-mask infamy uh, infamy seekers. Uh, let's go to Trader Joe Karen. This one's in California. This is day one. This is opening day of Trader Joe's in North Hollywood. This is Karen. That man harassed me for not wearing a mask is how that finishes out. Her name is not Karen. I use that as the slang term, and as you heard the person who was filming it using it, and it's the loaded term. I'll, I'll grant you that, but nevertheless, there's another example of someone kind of losing it a little bit. Let's go to the Fort Myers in Costco. You're, you're coming close friends. to me. You're coming close Back to me. Back off! Dance. Threat me again! Dance. Back to f- off! Put your f- phone down! That is a Costco in Fort Myers, Florida. A man angrily shouting at someone who was videotaping him when he was asked to wear a mask. He has now been identified and fired from his job. So what is it that is behind all of this? Well, you know, psychiatrists have some terms for this. You'd be surprised to find. And Marcia Sirota is our friendly neighborhood psychiatrist and joins me on the line. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you doing? Well, I'm I'm all right. Uh, can you explain this this angry outburst and these reactions that you were seeing on social media? Yes. First of all, I just want to say about the woman's grandmother. You know, it's so unfortunate because wearing the mask is going to protect her grandmother, and she she 
says that she loves her grandmother, but she's not behaving in a loving way. I consider wearing a mask an act of love because we're doing it for other people. It's, it's part of the social contract to be caring and respectful toward others. So, you know, whatever her belief system is, the fact is that she's not protecting her grandmother if she wants to go and be with her without a mask. But when I think about these people who are saying, you know, COVID is a hoax and masks are bad for you, it reminds me of that book by George Orwell, 1984, and they had this whole new kind of way of, the, the totalitarian government had this new way of saying things. So they would say things like, war is peace, uh, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. And it reminds me of that. And that book was a, a very dystopian novel from many years ago that children studied in schools, but obviously some of these people today haven't studied that book because they're kind of saying the same kind of thing. You know, COVID doesn't exist and masks are bad for you, which is exactly the opposite of the truth. It's, it's interesting that you would raise 1984 because the people on the other side of the debate would wave that same book and say, well, here is a, a ploy by big government and big brother to, you know, make us do all of these things all in the, you know, all in the pursuit of quote-unquote science, but it's not really about science, it's about controlling us. Yes, well, you know, there is a social contract, as I mentioned before, and there's a lot of ways that we're controlled. We have to drive with seatbelts and ride our bikes with helmets, and we have to observe the, the speed limit, and we have to pay our taxes, and we have to stand and wait when the light is red at the uh, crosswalk. There are many, many rules that we have to follow. That's part of the social contract. That's part of living in a civilized society. And we accept those controls because we know that it creates a safe and, and healthy and positive community. And so when we're, um, you know, faced with this horrendous crisis, this pandemic, which is killing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, the least we can do is observe the social contract and if there's another restriction or two that we have to suffer for a little while, it's worth it for the greater good. And yes, perhaps some of our freedoms are curtailed, but we're not doing it so that the government can control us. We're doing it to save lives and to preserve our economy and our healthcare system. So there's a really strong positive reason for giving up a little bit of this bodily autonomy that this woman is talking about. You know, it's for the greater good, and it's and it's not a permanent thing. And it, I don't think that it's uh, something that we should be up in arms against at all. But but there, is there not something just sort of natural in in human behavior and in a certain portion of of human minds that you know when an authority figure says do a you know, the, the initial response is going to be, I will do everything in my power not to do A. There is a certain type of person, I call it the angry adolescent, and actual angry adolescents are always like that. You know, you say, clean your room, and they go, you know, get lost. But there are some adults who grow up, but they don't mature, and they remain psychologically like angry adolescents. These are people who have you know, psychological dysfunction, because when we do mature, we're supposed to be able to be flexible, we're supposed to be able to be open-minded, we're supposed to be able to take directions and instructions and be reasonable and easygoing. And so people who are rigid and angry and resistant are stuck in this primitive mindset, and it's a sign of psychological disturbance. It's not actually a sign of good emotional well-being. Marcia, always great to have you on the show. I hope you're keeping well. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.
It is Marcia Sorota, who is a psychiatrist, who joins us regularly here on the Alan Carter Radio Program. All right, when we come back, I'm going to take a break from your COVID-19 mask wearing and all the rest of it, and I am just going to dig into this whole Johnny Depp tabloid newspaper libel trial. Oh my goodness. I don't if you haven't been paying attention to all the bits and bobs, all the droppings as it were. Whoa, have I got a story for you. That's next on the Alan Carter Radio program. get into it, shall we? Have you been following the Johnny Depp libel trial that is going on in London? And I just, yeah, there's a couple of things. There's some serious aspects to this, and it is also kind of a house on fire. You know, it's kind of one of those things where you're like, I just can't, I just can't stop looking at this thing. Because it's a peek inside, you know, a cloistered world of fame and power. And greed and sex and money and all those things, all the all the things. But it also, there's also a thing about you know, well, who do you who do you believe? Now let me give you the let me let, let me just give you the the four one one, the skinny, the uh, the Coles notes, the for dummies on the Johnny Depp issue. What it is is it's a libel suit. Depp is suing a UK tabloid newspaper that called him quote unquote wife beater. And the Associated Press sums up the case that's ongoing this way. The case is shining a light on the tempestuous relationship between Depp and his former wife, who met on the set of the 2011 comedy The Rum Diary and married in Los Angeles in February of 2015. Miss Hurd, who is uh, his ex-wife, a model and actress, filed for divorce the following year, obtained a restraining order against Depp on the grounds of domestic abuse. The divorce was finalized in 2017. Now, uh, Amber Hurt, who's 34, uh, nor Mr. Depp, neither of those are on trial. Neither of those people are on trial. This case is a showdown between the two former spouses who accuse each other of being controlling, violent, deceitful during their marriage. Uh, Johnny Depp on the stand has said, quote, I vehemently deny it and will go as far as to say it is pedestrian fiction, he has said, of his former wife's accusations of his physical abuse. There have been details about Mr. Depp's uh, drug abuse and the fact that he was trying to get clean and that he was sometimes violent although Mr. Depp says he was only ever violent to things, never to his now ex-wife. Now, Depp is also suing his ex-wife for $50 million in the United States for allegedly defaming him in a Washington Post article about domestic abuse, and that case is expected to be heard next year. And so all of this sort of ties into a bunch of different things, because not only do you have accusations between these, you know, two stars, and the details of the thing are, it is, in itself, could be a movie. You know, just total reckless abandoned boozing and just carrying on and throwing things and just madness. And here's where it gets real weird. 
You might want to down your fork here if you haven't heard this particular one. Deb said in one particularly disgusting incident occurred at a party for his wife's, his now ex-wife's 30th birthday in their Los Angeles penthouse in May of 2016, uh, following a blow-up between the couple. They have a big tiff, they have a big fight. Uh, the following morning, uh, Ms. Heard, Amber Heard, or possibly one of her friends, this is a quote from Johnny Depp, defecated in our shared bed. And Johnny, wow. Uh, and Johnny Depp says, at that point, I thought, you know what? I think uh, I'm going to have to divorce. And you think to yourself, would that be grounds for divorce in your life? I think it would. Now, initially, she said it was the dog. He says, not the dog. The dog couldn't, it's like a teacup poodle or some kind of small dog. Dog couldn't get on the bed. And plus, it ain't no dogs. You know what I mean. That, that doesn't add up. All of this, so strange and so weird. And I just can't, I can't tear my eyes away from it. And it is going on still in London. That is the Johnny Depp trial. The, well, no, let's see, I got to back that up because that's wrong. It's not. Johnny Depp's not on trial. It's a libel trial for a U.K. tabloid that called him, quote, unquote, a wife beater. So if you, if you, so this is the thing, and, and here is in the law, is that defense against libel is truth. This is what you learn when you're a journalist is like, well, you know, if somebody accuses you of libel, you can't say that up against me, that's libelous. All right, well, as a news organization, if you can demonstrate, well, that's actually the truth. That is, the, that is actually, you know, and, and in this particular case, quote, unquote, wife beater, if you can establish in a courtroom that, well, here, here's an incident of you actually abusing your spouse. That's truth, and that is defense against libel. And so now, oddly, you know, it's not about the libel. Now it becomes, the, the trial becomes really about what happened in the breakup of that relationship. And, and, and some of the stories about Depp, you know, this, that, you know, that nobody says no to him, that he's totally out of control, uh, that, there, you know, he, he's a complete drug addict, uh, and, you know, that there isn't a drug he hasn't tried. All of that is uh, unfolding in a courtroom in London, and I, I can't tear my eyes away from it. All right, when we come back, closer to home and certainly more important to us, is the topic of police reform. And this morning what began is a number of days of hearings with the Toronto Police Services Board. This is the board that actually will be responsible, for example, in choosing the next police chief and will also have to go through the whole budgetary budgetary process, whether or not we, quote-unquote, defund the police, depending on how you uh, feel about that or what you think that even means. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what happened in uh, these hearings earlier today, and we're going to talk about what possibly is on the table when it comes to the issue of taking money away from the police, from the police budget. That's all coming up on the Alan Carter Radio Program. What are we going to do about Toronto Police, about the Toronto Police Force? As you know, this city is at a crossroads in terms of where we go from here. We have not only 
the position of chief, which the Toronto Police Services Board will shortly begin uh, deliberating on who to choose to take over from Mark Saunders. And, of course, this week, Mike McCormick, the head of the Toronto Police Association, announced that he is stepping down. So we have these two big changes right at the top. At the same time, we have Toronto City Councillors, uh, two of them in a motion calling for a defund the police to the tune of 10%. Defund the police, a fancy way of saying, let's reduce the police budget and put that money elsewhere. And there are a lot of people who b- agree with that, think that's a great idea. Doug Ford, for example, though, is not one of them. The Premier saying that he does not support reducing police budgets. All of this is being discussed at a series of town halls, virtual town halls, that are being held by the Toronto Police Services Board in an attempt to get your input, the input from the public, about which way the Toronto Police Service should go. Monitoring those, uh, monitoring that town hall today is Wendy Gillis, who is the crime reporter for the Toronto Star, and Wendy joins me on the line. Hi, Wendy. Hey, thanks for having me. So it started off this morning. doesn't sound like the technology was working all that well. Yeah, I mean, I think we've grown to expect that these these types of online virtual town halls or meetings, that kind of thing, always have a little bit of um, issues. So as a result, I don't think we heard from as, quite as many uh, people as was expected. Um, hopefully, sort of by this afternoon, um, they will have gotten some of that sorted out. And initially, I believe this was only supposed to be one day, but the, the number of people who signed up to be speakers has now pushed it to a multi-day event. Yeah, it sure has. I, I, I know that hundreds of people um, asked to depute or to make a, a sort of short speech before the Toronto Police Board. Um, so the one day quickly filled up. Um, they increased it to four days. And as far as I understand, there were also thousands of people that have kind of written in and sent in um, their thoughts, uh, you know, via email. Apparently, the board is also taking audio and video um, submissions. So it sounds like there is a huge appetite to, you know, have people give their say and, and talk about what they want to see in policing. All right, let's just back up to a, a higher level here and get an oversight, because I, I think there's some confusion about what the police board is, who's mm-hmm. on it, and what he, its responsibilities are. Give, give me a kind of a overview of that. Sure, yeah. I mean, the Toronto Police Services Board is technically sort of the employer. Um, you know, they employ the Toronto Police Chief, for example, um, and so they are the ones who... Um, will be making the decision about who's going to lead the, the police force as they're, you know, we know that Mark Saunders is stepping down early, as you mentioned. Um, there is a chair. The police board chair is a man named Jim Hart. Um, and then it's you know, seven members. And that is drawn from um, city council and also the province makes uh, designations as well. So it's kind of a, a rotating cast. Usually they're in for, for a few years. Sometimes board members are there for quite a long time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they are the ones who make decisions. They meet um, monthly. They hear from the public. They get they can ask for all kinds of uh, reports from the police chief, and, and they do make important decisions. However, do they make a decision when it comes to the actual overall budget? Where does that decision power, or that power uh, lie? Ultimately, the, that power lies with, with the city council, and that's why in last week there was the decision, um, or rather the discussion around whether city council could, um, quote-unquote, defund, and, you you know, there's sort of different 
uh, understandings of what that even means. But you know, the the request was to reduce the budget by ten percent, and that that failed. Um, so you know, the the police board itself makes decisions about how the money is spent, but ultimately whether they get the money, that comes out of the, the municipal budget. And my understanding is that only the police services board sees the line by line and can vote on the line by line uh, when you start digging into the actual budget. The council doesn't get a chance to review that. Well, that has been a really big bone of contention, of course, because there has not typically, historically, been real disclosure around exactly how um, that money is spent. And you saw in in, um, recommendation a couple weeks ago that the board put forward um, kind of answering some of these calls um, for change. You know, they were asking the police chief for far more public disclosure around how money is spent. And the response to that was like, okay, great. That's good that that is you know, that request is being made, but there should have been far more disclosure way earlier. You know, that was a lot of the criticism I was hearing was like, this is not, you know, super forward thinking. It's kind of just what you might expect from um, a public institution like the police. So I know that 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 is in the works now to have a better understanding of exactly how um, money is spent by the police. I know we've only had a couple of deputants actually get through so far, but what have you heard so far? I know you've been monitoring it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think by my count, there's been a, more than a dozen. Um, uh, there are definitely themes that are emerging. I mean, there is a there's a real call to defund police. Um, you know, I think generally that means having a broader conversation about how public money is spent. Um, it means kind of reallocation. Uh, that's what I'm hearing is, you know, taking some of the money that is spent by the police and investing it in communities, having, you know, having there be community services, um, you know, maybe even going into housing or back into education. That's a common theme that's being talked about is, you know, it, a lot for a lot of people, the concept of, defunding police might seem radical, but I I think what I'm hearing from some of these deputants is we have been, quote-unquote, defunding institutions like education and healthcare and housing for a long time. And so this is another way to say, let's take some of the money that is spent by police and reinvest it in other areas. And I know, you know, we we know from from research that has done that that can have the impact of reducing crime. Uh, So that's one really big aspect of this. Another one is um, who answers a 911 call that um, has to do with mental health? I I would say almost all of the callers that I have um, heard today have made some mention of creating a different type of emergency response to, for example, suicide calls or a call potentially involving um, someone who's in mental health distress who may be a threat to themselves or another person. Um, You know, for a lot of people, having a police officer answer who has a gun, who has a taser, um, that can, in fact, you know, escalate a situation, make it worse, and lead to, as we, as we have seen, tragic consequences. So, you know, that, that has been another major element of this. Um, and then, of course, you know, just having a better response and acceptance of the fact that, that racism exists within our society and having the police service and the police services board respond to that and, and deal with it and grapple with it in, in a real and systemic way. Uh, just to so circle no, back... 
Oh, sorry, go ahead. Just to circle back to, to where we all began here, when we talk about, you know, the, the change that we have in front of us, not only with the chief, and as we, you mentioned, the Police Services Board has the authority to choose the new chief. They don't get a vote, however, on the new head of the Toronto Police uh, Association. Give me mm-hmm. a sense of of how that position works into the power structure here as, this, as we discuss budgets and so that sort of thing. Yes, um, that's a great question. So it is the, the membership of the Toronto Police Association that will vote in the next president. Um, that's, you know, the number changes all the time, but approximately it's about 5,000 um, police officers and then about 2,000 civilian employees. Um, and they're the ones who will vote, as I understand it, sometime in early 2021 um, on who the next president will be, the, the interim president will be the current vice president. Um, and, you know, officially, they do not have a say in the next police chief. I think we all know if you spent some time in this city that um, the police union does wield a fair amount of unofficial power. And certainly a, a, a candidate for the next police chief who has the support of the police union and, and you know, de facto the support of the kind of rank and file, that means something to the board, um, or at least it has historically. Um, I know that you know, it it can it can ease um, transitions. It can make change easier if um, the police chief, him or herself, has the support of, of the rank and file, and um, you know that, that that certainly can have an influence on on who they choose. So, um, yeah, it, it definitely has. They, they definitely have unofficial power in that sense. And then, of course, the Toronto Police Association um, enters into um, agreements with the police board itself when it comes to a collective agreements. And so that's, that's really significant, too, because we know that a large percentage of the police budget is, um, you know, salaries. So that, that gets decided at the police with, between the police board and the police association. So that's a lot of power, too. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a lot of moving parts here, but it's very important. And uh, it's great to have you watching it all for us. Wendy Gillis, crime reporter for the Toronto Star. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. So there you go to the Police Services Board. I know you're saying to yourself, Dad, what? Dad. <laughs> because I was going to say, this is boring. And that's what I hear from my kids all the time. <laughs> Alan, this is boring. But it is so vitally important to understand how these institutions and these mechanics work. And when we start talking about things like why, why do we send you know, the people with the guns to deal with the people with mental health issues. It doesn't make sense. And if we want to change it, then we have to understand how our institutions affect change. And one of the ways is perhaps to be able to, you know, be part of these town halls, to write in, to be able to try and get your voice heard by the Toronto Police Services Board, which really is only partially accountable to us, the people. Because as you heard, it is made up by political appointees. It's made up by uh, civic officials. For example, John Tory, you know, he's he's on the police services board. And obviously we have a direct say as electorate as to whether or not, you know, he's in office or not. But the makeup of the police services board itself is not entirely accountable to the people. And I think we have to understand how does the police services board work and what are the influences on it? For example, the police association and whoever takes over that police association in what direction they move, that will have so much impact 
on whether or not we are effectively able to change the budgetary amount that the police have and say, well, you know what, we're going to take some of the apples from over here and we're going to put them over here because we're going to get a better outcome because it's about time we have to keep stop. We have to stop talking about the bad apples, the rotten apples in the police force. And we need to maybe, you know, think about what we're going to spend our money on and where our money will be most effective. All right. Thank you so much for spending your time with me this hour. Always great to have you along. We'll talk again tomorrow at noon. Have a great afternoon.